2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Listen on
2: 1050 AM, 102.3 FM and
3: 106.5 FM. KCAA Loma Linda, your CNBC news station, where your business comes first.
4: This episode of The House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction, science
3: fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller.
1: You have now entered
2: the House of Mystery with your hosts Eric Shapiro,
5: David North Martino,
1: John Copenhaver, and our warrior.
6: 102.3
3: FM, Los Angeles. 102.3 FM, Riverside. And 1050
6: AM,
1: Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. And uh, on the uh, left, left side, we've got Mr. David North Martino.
6: Hello, hello. Thanks for having me out.
1: <laughs> and on the, on the right side, we've got the doctor, Mr. Eric Shapiro. How's it going, Al? Always good. But how could it be bad?
7: I, I can't imagine.
1: Can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, here we are. Um, well, today, we'll just jump right into the interview here because we've got a, a great guest here. This is a man that's uh, written over 100 books, and he has over 500 million books say it sold. That's just amazing. Um, he's almost up to you, Dave. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> um okay. So Mr. Dean Koontz, thank you for being here. Oh well, thanks for having me. Oh it's a pleasure. So you've got another new book out uh called Quicksilver. How do you keep um your ideas and your books fresh?
8: Uh you know it's uh it's a I think the biggest way you do that is to challenge yourself by doing something you haven't done before. Uh now you can't Always have, after all these books be completely original, but it's amazing how many stories there are to be told, how many ways there are to tell them, how many techniques you haven't used before and that you want to challenge yourself to see if you can handle. Uh, and it's, uh, it's sort of an infinite smorgasbord of possible narratives. And that keeps me fresh. It's also good have a publisher who can roll with what you're doing and doesn't expect you to produce the same book every time, uh, which I've had sometimes in the past, uh, because I have to entertain myself first. And if I can't make, get myself involved
1: in the story, the reader certainly isn't going to be there. So I think that's the way it stays fresh. What do you find the most difficult part um, when you're writing a book? Uh,
8: keeping the rest of life. Away from you, so you can have long hours at the keyboard uninterrupted. It gets more and more difficult in this interconnected world we're in. Uh, and uh, there's, I do best when I'm working in an eight or ten hour session. Uh, and that's when I fall away into the story. And it becomes totally real to me. But it gets harder and harder than our
1: world to get those eight and ten hour sessions. So that's the thing I struggle with the most. Are you able to just sit down then and kind of schedule and say, okay, well, this is on, you know, walk my dog, come back home, and then I've got eight hours. I'll just write eight hours, and you can just turn it on and write, or do you have to be in a certain mood? Well, uh, I get up at
8: 5.30 by, uh, at the latest, 7 o'clock. I'm at the, uh, at the desk. I eat lunch, if I eat it at all, at the desk, and I work through to dinner. Uh and uh, I walk the dog in the morning, and then uh, other people walk the dog later. Uh, and as long as you get into that schedule you sit there, some days are good, some days stink, and uh some days you produce next to nothing, some days you produce five pages. But it works out over time. It's that persistence of effort that I think makes a lot of difference. And, uh, yeah, you're not always in the mood, but... If you just stay with it, uh, the mood comes to you more often than not, and you fall away into the story, and then it starts to move.
7: You know, I've heard, Dean, over the years that you're very painstaking in terms of uh, you'll move forward through a page, but you won't progress past it until it's just the way you want it. Is that accurate?
8: Yeah, I did ten, twenty, thirty 20, 30 graphs the page before moving on. Uh, I always say that all... Uh, all writer's block has to do with the same thing. It's self-doubt. Uh, and I have as much or more self-doubt than any writer I've ever known. But the way I've never had writer's block is that I do this polish, polish, polish before I move forward again. Then I get to the next page and that self-doubt. Comes back and I do the same thing. I, I, at the end of the chapter, then I print out a pencil a few times. Uh, the beauty of this is it slows you down from that bad idea of a quick first draft because when you do a quick first draft you kind of don't want to go back and do the work that makes it perfect at least i don't i'm at heart a potential slacker so the way i i I keep myself from slacking off is that being meticulous about page by page construction and quality of the prose page by page uh, and it it works for me. I don't say that it works for every writer. But I think it's the only way I've been able to produce as much as I have. By the time I get to the end of the book, it's had so many drafts, I don't need to go back.
7: So, in other words, having worked on each page in that manner 20 or 30 times, by the time you're at the end, and you go back and read the whole thing, you feel it's locked at that point because you've been so meticulous.
8: You may occasionally get some thought late in the book.
7: You have to go back and,
8: and readdress something. But generally speaking, uh, it's uh, uh, one of the great things about working that pace. Some writers say to me, um, and I've known a few other writers who work like this, but one thing about it that is so good is, you're working on the story subconsciously while you're working on the quality of the prose and the narration and the characterization. And you see, at some level, problems coming. How am I going to get the character from here to there? How am I going to explain this when I don't myself know how to explain it right now? But your subconscious is working on it. And when you get to that moment where you've been anticipating trouble you find you have two or three avenues to get around that problem. Uh, and I don't think that would happen if I wrote a quick draft.
7: So in other words, when you're doing this uh, extent of revision, it's more of a, it's the way you're describing it is it sounds like it's cerebral. It's a mental and intellectual process, or at least a process that facilitates your subconscious, as opposed to just a gut level, gut level emotional uh, process of riffing it. There, there's some of
8: that, there's some of that gut level stuff. There are moments, uh, frequently where you come to something and you say to yourself, whoa, and you start to write it and you think, no, that's a very bad direction. I can remember I was working on a book called life expectancy and it opens with two men in an expectant father's lounge in the hospital. And one of them is the father who is going to be the lead of the novel who is being born that night. And that character is moving from the expectant father's lounge to the critical care unit where his own father is dying of a stroke. And I wanted to, I knew that the other expectant father was going to be his nemesis for the rest, and the nemesis of his son being born that night. But I didn't know who it was. And suddenly, as I was writing the description of it, I wrote the word, he was a clown. And I stopped and thought, what? What do I mean he was a clown? And I meant that he was one of that Emmett Kelly clowns in a shabby dark suit with clown makeup, but not the big red shoes and all that. And I stopped and looked at that on the page and said, that is that there's no way that makes any sense. But by that time I've been writing so long, I knew that when the subconscious does that, pay attention. That's a gut level thing. And if I hadn't gone forward with that. That book, which has been one of my most popular, would never have been written because the character needed to be a clown. Um, And so there is a gut level thing that I don't know is simply your subconscious working. It's intuitive uh, at times.
6: Now, you started out writing under a lot of pseudonyms as well as your own name. Uh, You got to the point um, where you were, you know, earning a living, of course. Uh, Is there anything that you can pinpoint that, I guess, helped you to break out and become a best-selling author?
8: Uh, well we can say I was on the other thing. <laughs> it was touch and go a lot <laughs> uh, but uh, and I was using the pen names because from the day I started I liked to write different things and my agents and publishers would say wait a minute you delivered this totally different sort of book you need a different name to publish that kind of thing and I was young and stupid they they often go together in my case they went together in spades and uh I, uh, I took that advice, uh, uh, there's a lot of publishing wisdom that isn't wisdom it's just common wisdom which isn't the same thing uh, and I ended up at one point having published on the reader that I came. Uh and the first bestseller I ever had was under a pen bang. Uh and when I finally became a bestseller under my own name I said enough of this uh, in fact I'm going to go back to some of the best of those books and put them under my name, and they became bestsellers in paperback. Uh, So it was bad advice that I took in a misguided sort of way. And it was all based on the idea that readers always want writers to do the same thing. That's what publishers want. It isn't necessarily what readers want.
6: Now, I began uh, reading your books around 1987 uh, at 16 with Watchers. And uh, I have to say, you're partially responsible for my marriage because my wife and I, we bonded over your books and, and some other books that uh, we had read. And uh, that's that's how we ended up um, uh, getting married. But i um, just wondering, you know, with Watchers, there's an intelligent golden retriever. And, of course, Devoted also has um, a golden retriever in it. Uh, how important have uh, dogs been in your novels and in your life? When I wrote Watchers,
8: I had uh, I'd only had a dog... Re- two dogs briefly as a child Um, and one lasted about two weeks when he wrapped a chain around my neck and he was tied up with a chain. You never should do that with a dog. And uh, almost strangled me when I was six years old or five. My mother happened to look out a window and see it. Uh, So that was the end of Tiny. He weighed 120 pounds so he shouldn't have been called Tiny in the first place. And uh, I never had a dog as an adult but I'd always admired gold retrievers and uh, The idea for Watchers came to me. I wrote it. And subsequent to that, uh, I found that I love writing about dogs. I've included quite a number of novels, different breeds, different sometimes in a supporting role, sometimes in closer to a major role. Uh, And dogs have become very important in my life. I've had three beautiful golden retrievers now. One of them just had her head in my lap for a little bit while we were talking. Uh, and life is so much better with a dog. To people who've never had a dog, it's that sounds stupid or silly or sentimental, but in fact, it's real. You don't fully grasp the beauty of life until you've had a really good dog yet.
6: Absolutely. Now, in that vein, you, you began your career uh, writing standalone novels, and uh, it's kind of what I came to... Of, of age uh, reading, and uh, then you started writing series like uh, Frankenstein and Odd Thomas. Uh, later on, uh, why did you begin uh, writing series? Uh, was there a change in reader expectations, or were you just interested in uh, uh, following uh, you know specific characters through a series of books? Well, I have to give
8: sight too. I've written, uh, I, I guess, four series. Um, But these two, it's interesting. It was different things that sparked the series. In the Frankenstein series, I I was put into business with a producer through our mutual agent, and he wanted me to update uh, Dracula. I said, everybody has updated Dracula a hundred times. Nobody has updated Frankenstein. I kind of think that's more interesting. So I wrote a screenplay uh, we placed it with a the network. Uh, they asked me to expand it into a two-hour pilot. In the meantime, uh, that pilot, when I delivered it, fell into the hands of Martin Scorsese, who was looking for something to direct as his first fiction direction in television. He did documentaries before that. And Marty loved the script. Uh, he came aboard. I thought, Wow. We've got a 800 pound gorilla. Uh, so this thing's going to get made properly. Well, it turns out nobody's really an 800 pound gorilla in that business. And they ended up just destroying the whole premise and making a very bad two hour pilot out of it that had nothing to do with what I had written. And I, I was, I thought, look, I'm going to have to show people what I really intended. I thought I would write three books in the Frankenstein series, but I wrote five. And the motivation there was really, okay, you idiots in Hollywood, this is what it could have been. (laughs) Uh, And then the Odd Thomas, uh, that idea came to me, and I found the writing of that book so satisfying. I was very high on it when I finished it. My publisher at that time hated it so intensely. But he refused to talk to me about it. And we always talked endlessly about other books on Little Girl. Uh, and, and he would not talk to me about it. I knew through the editor that he felt this book was destroying my career. I felt quite the opposite. I pressed that it, we would publish this in the order I expected it to be published. Uh, when it got a 100 and some lovely reviews, I don't made about one or two bad ones, uh, and when orders from booksellers started to come in stronger than ever, he came to me and said, uh, you said you want to write more about this character. Okay, I'll let you do it, but you have to give me another book in between each Thomas novel. Uh, and that, again, was sort of uh, sort of saying, okay, I'm going to show you this. this works. People will like this character. I think his problem with it is the character wasn't... Uh, a cleanerist Eastwood uh, sort of character who can take care of business, or a Jack Beecher or that sort of character. He's he's a fry cook, and he, he's a guy who doesn't really much like guns, and uh, he handles business in a different way, and there was a lot of humor and eccentric characters in it. It ended up being eight novels before I stopped. Uh, and so they came about in different ways. It was no real conscious intention initially that I was ever going to write
1: series. Yet each one sort of happened for a different reason. I, I notice quite often um, in your books you you seem to um, write about standing up against uh, darkness or an evil of some sort. Um, wh- where does that come from? Uh, it took
8: me many years to actually think about it. Uh, and when I did think about it, I knew exactly where it started with me. It was with my father. My father was a violent alcoholic who held 44 jobs in 34 years. We never knew if we'd have a roof over our head from one day to the next. Uh, and uh, he, when things would go particularly bad for him, he would talk about killing himself. And more frequently, he would talk about, it would better if we all died together. I never knew if he was serious about that meant or not. And so I grew up in that kind of environment. Uh later in life I ended up supporting him for 14 years, moving him here to California, not in our house. I would never have that again. But I watched how my father lived his life and uh and I saw how uh, how unproductive that was, let's say. And later in life he ended up on two different occasions in a psych ward. The first time he was identified simply as borderline schizophrenic with tendency to violence, complicated by alcoholism. But the second time he was diagnosed as sociopathic, which explained a great deal to me. Um, Sociopaths have no human feelings as we know them, but they're very good at faking them. And that was my father. he could get people to invest in inventions he made that were impossible to sell. Uh, and then he'd spend the money on drinks and women and gambling. Uh, and never end up in jail because he could talk his way out of it. I think I began recognizing that evil was a real thing in the world then. And I certainly, as long as I, the older I get, the more I see it as an active force in the world. But not all evil that people do comes out of economic injustice or other reasons. Sometimes it's just plain
1: know. Yeah, I, I had a very similar upbringing with my father as well. Um, I, I found it was very dark but I found that I was still I, I was still happy but I think I was in a in a in a different world. You know, my mind went in a different world. I ended up writing true crime and, and interviewing people in prisons that had murder and stuff and I, I find um, that I, I sort of have the same idea as you, um, but my characters are real. Like I, I go and meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, where do the characters come from
8: for you? It's uh, it's somewhat of a mystery.
1: Um, a character
8: like Odd Thomas will come to me. I was working on a novel called The Face, and uh, I was halfway through it, and it was probably a 200, 250,000 word novel, so it was a, a large undertaking. And I was halfway through it, working, and in, and in my head came the line. my name is Odd Thomas. I lead an unusual life. And I thought, huh, that, what does that have to do with anything? This happens to me from time to time. And I, I never write on hand. I always write on the keyboard. But I keep a tablet beside me to make notes. And I made a note of that. That wasn't going to be the exact opening, but I knew there was something in a character named Doc Thomas and that he led an unusual life. The next thing I knew, I was writing longhand, and I ended up writing the whole first chapter of that novel, that day and the next, all longhand. And when I was finished with it, I kind of marveled at it and said, when I come back to this after finishing the phase, I'm going to think it's stupid, and I won't go forward with it. When I came back to it, That that handwritten first chapter Ended up being the first chapter Of the novel Uh, So sometimes I don't know where the character comes from Uh, But if In the first 15-20 pages That character doesn't sing If he doesn't speak to me Or she If I don't feel for them, Then I know it's the wrong character And it's the wrong story Uh, Fortunately by the time I get 20-30 pages It nearly always continues to work out
1: you said You said earlier something about using um your subconscious, so how do you become aware of your subconscious and help it in your writing i don 't think you can help it uh, you know there's this thing when you 're writing called
8: flow state, or athletes call being in the zone, and when you 're sitting there trying to get three or four pages out of the got for today uh, that you feel are in an almost final form. Uh, and you're struggling with that. And then suddenly, uh, once in a great while, you'll have a 15 page day and you'll look at it at the end of the day and say, this can't be any good. I remember I had this, I had a 36 hour writing, uh, event when I was writing watchers. It was going so well that I didn't want to stop. You know, I mean, I wrote 36 hours and fell into bed and slipped 12 or 14. Um, and when I came back to those, all those pages I wrapped up in 36 hours it, and read them, I expected disaster. What I found was I hadn't even made a typo. Uh, that is something you can't make happen when you're in the zone or when you're uh, in a flow state and you try to think about it, it goes away. It's mysterious. And I think always that's the way the subconscious works. It's, it's working. Uh, on all the material you've given it with your life. And if you just let it alone, it brings things to you that you weren't anticipating. It's not a satisfying answer, but it's the only one I could
7: give. So you've published over 105 novels, and then you have novellas and short story collections. Um, You spoke a moment ago about how if the character's not clicking in those first 20 or 30 pages, you know it's not the right story. I'm curious if... uh, you abandon projects with any rate of frequency, and if so, how many how many unfinished novels are there? There are not a lot of unfinished,
8: because if, if it's not working, I abandon it pretty early. Uh, yeah, so, I don't know, maybe 20 uh, over the years. When I was starting out, I wrote three, I think it was three novels that never sold, as I fumbled my way to figure out how I did this, or how anyone did this. Um, but... It seems like a lot of production, but Henry James wrote 130-some books. Uh, and I think it comes down to anybody doing this. It's a matter of how long you do it and how much time you put in, and how much you really enjoy writing it. I love people, but I love being in that room with that story, if the story is working. I have a good time with it. It's hard work, as you both you all know. Writing is hard work. There's no way around that. But if it's going well, it's also play at the same time. And if you're making a living at it, hey, who gets to have a job they love It's sort of like play and that you're doing well with and you can work out of your own home? Uh back when nobody really did. Uh so when you get to be my age and you've been doing this. More than half a century. Uh, it's amazing how many books pile up.
7: I'm so curious about the element of loving people, also, particularly in terms of what you shared about your dad. Have you always felt that you love, have loved people, and been curious about people, or is that something you sort of grew into as you sort of countered your own upbringing? Uh,
8: I think I've always been there. I was class clown in high school, somewhat of a slacker academically, uh, but I. I uh, I always liked, uh, people. My, I had an aunt who uh, was a very difficult person, lived near us. And uh, I've actually thought of writing a book with this title, a memoir. Uh, I, I was not an unhappy kid. Uh, uh, it was, I could always find somewhere to go, something to be interested in that made me happy. Books were there very early. By the time I was eight years old, I was writing a story. Um, and when I got a bike and I could go anywhere a the small farm town and get away from that house, that made me happy. There were always things that made me happy. And this aunt of mine one day, I well, watched this happen several times, she'd come upon me somewhere where I was laughing, where I was reading a book and just in a great state of mind. And she'd scowl at me because she knew the situation of my family. And she would say, you're too happy for your own good. You better wake up. And I always thought that was strange, too happy for you, no, I'm good. I didn't know such a thing was possible. But I've, I've sort of always been that way. Uh, you can either be you're thinking by what happens to you or just say, I'm getting past this. This is not going to be my life. And for some reason, that was the way I felt from quite a young
7: age. So do you find, despite uh, the fact that a lot of your work it could be characterized as dark, you know, suspenseful thrillers, and it has these mysterious elements. Do you find that joy is a big motivator for you in terms of uh, the day-to-day work and the volume of work? Absolutely. And also, uh, not all
8: my novels, Intensity, the other Emily, some of them don't have a lot of uh, room in them for humor. But Quicksilver is a comic novel in part, and I've written a lot of them have a high degree of humor in them. Uh, and sometimes that has caused problems, especially in the early years with publishers when I was told you can't have humor in a suspense novel because nobody would be on the edge of their seat. And I said, listen, if you, if you laugh with the character, he's more human, uh, and you care more about him. And in fact, the way we deal with all the vicissitudes of life is humor. So everything becomes more real with that. But there was great resistance to it when I first was doing it. And uh, if I was going to write a comic novel, it had a big comic novel. It couldn't also be a suspense novel. And I found that was a very strange thing. Uh, I'm not sure if I remembered exactly your question. But, uh, yeah, there's. Yeah, I write a lot of dark now, I remember it. But, there. you know, the thing that readers say in the mail, the most things said most often,
0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
8: What they read these novels for, number one, before the suspense and the thrills, is the hope. And it struck me... Very profoundly, I started to get that kind of mail. And I had to stop and look at my own writing and say, you know, that is actually what's here because that's what I believe about life. I am an optimist and a, a kind of almost drunken optimist. So it comes through in the book and people seem to really relate to that.
4: Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage, the best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go.
0: Need to hire fast? Finding great candidates is a full-time job in itself. But with ZipRecruiter, it's simple. With just one click, we'll post your job to over 100 of the top job boards. And by the next day, you can select the best candidates from one easy-to-review list. Over 400,000 businesses have already used ZipRecruiter to hire. Post to over 100 job boards in one click and get qualified candidates as soon as tomorrow. Try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com.
6: Lowe's knows you're a
3: craftsman guy. You have a lot of tools. Tools for everything you've done around the house. But there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools. When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of craftsmen. Now
6: back to the show. Sweet dreams. I'm You're known to have an extensive vocabulary. Have you ever gotten pushback from a publisher or even readers uh, for the vocabulary that you include in your stories?
8: You know, I've never had it from a reader. Uh, and there was a period of years where we got, when the snail mail was still the thing, uh, we got about 20,000 snail mail letters a year from readers. And uh, I never got one letters saying, your vocabulary bothers me, it's too big. It's, I am driven to the dictionary. But I did get it from some publishers. I remember when I was at uh, Putnam before I became a bestseller. My publisher told me, you'll never be a bestseller because for three reasons. One, your vocabulary is much too big, uh, and you've got to cut it down. I remember she said 500 words. <laughs> I thought was strange. <laughs> your plots are too complicated and complex. And your themes are too complex. Uh, and I thought, well, it's what I do and now I am. I took it always to be what I found this often in the case. Not my current publisher, by the way. Uh, with whom I'm almost deliriously happy. Uh, but I found that it was something I encountered in very much New York publishing. A very low regard for the average reader. And that surprised me because when I would get the mail and I'd look at these letters, I would get letters from readers as young as 11 or 12 that were a lot more articulate and interesting than I could have written when I was 11 or 12. And it showed me that there was a vast audience out there that was ready for anything that challenged them more than most publishers to them.
6: Now, kind of in that vein, you wrote a book early in your career on writing. Uh, Would you consider writing uh, another book with uh, the knowledge that you have about the business today?
8: I took that book, actually, them. I took them out of print because I thought, (laughs) what an idiot uh, I was at that time. (laughs) There's some good advice to them, but a lot of it is wrong. And all businesses change so dramatically that uh, there's other things to approach. If I wrote a book about how to write... I don't even think I could do that anymore. I could write a book about how I write and you know, how I love this language and, and, and what narrative fiction can do that fascinates me. You know, when I was starting out, I, I was young and I thought, you know, when I've learned all the tricks, which I don't know how many I thought there were, 48, 112, whatever, then writing these are going to get easier and easier. Well, what you eventually learn is there's an infinite number of tricks or narrative techniques, uh, and there are an infinite number of potential stories. And so you're never going to learn all the tricks. The better way to go is say, what haven't I done? What could I learn to do better than I had on the next story? Um, And that's sort of what I've done, how it's gone, and it worked.
6: Now, earlier you were talking about uh, having novels turn into films. Uh, what's your experience been like in with, with Hollywood itself, and have you been able to give input into the films, or are, is it mostly uh, hands-off, as it, as it is with many authors? Uh, I got involved in it. I wrote
8: screenplays. They all got greenlighted. Uh, only a couple of them ever got made, uh, because uh, once they're greenlighted, then you find the director. He often turns out to be a cokehead or <laughs> something else <laughs> and everything falls apart for other reasons. I can remember I was on a talk show, a TV show with when Greg Kinnear had his own talk show. Um, and he's a very nice guy. Uh, and I can't remember the movie that was coming out at that point. It wasn't based on my script, but he said to me, would you recommend people go see this movie? And, because I'm always honest about these things, what came into my head to say was, Greg, if you had a choice of going to see this movie or nailing your hand to this table between us, <laughs> nail your hand to the table, it will be more fun. Uh, and I, that's been more often than not my experience with Hollywood. I love uh, Stephen Somers, the director of *Odd Thomas, but Stephen had a horrible time on that movie. Because he raised money independently, then some of it disappeared. I'm not going to say what I think happened to it. Stephen had to put some of his own money into it. Had to scramble with a crew sitting in uh, New Mexico to raise the money to finish the picture. It never got to be what it could have been. But he was a gem, a jewel to work with. Uh, Martin Scorsese was lovely to work with and, and a generous and sweet person. Uh, but the, the whole project went off the rails I have a number of projects Placed now I no longer want to write uh, I think the last Thing I may have written I might have done one thing later Was the screenplay for Fandoms and I worked on that With um, uh, Bob Weinstein, And uh, that pretty much burnt me out On writing screenplays I thought stay with, <laughs> stay with novels You know that works And you know you can control them uh, but right now we've, I have a very good film agent, uh, and very good book agents. I was without agents for 14 years because I got so burnt out on that process. Uh, but now I'm well represented and uh, we've got a number of projects placed for television with some really interesting people. So I've got my hopes up here. Uh, and I'm always ready to have them dashed, but I think in this case, maybe some of this will turn
1: out okay. Let's talk about the new book, Quicksilver. So what's the uh, premise of this book? Well, again, it's one of those things that comes into your head. You don't know
8: quite where it came from. In this case, i got this image in my head of a, a bassinet sitting in the middle lane of a three-lane desert highway, totally deserted highway. Uh, and in this bassinet is a three-day-old baby. When this came to me, I thought, well, obviously that's a novel, that's a story, but who is this? And and I thought, well, it's going to be that baby story, but you can't use a baby as a point of view. So you're going to have to go to the uh, story of when he's reached a certain age. And I knew in a few minutes he would be 19 and he would have been raised in an orphanage. And he's telling you this story afterward. Um, and so I thought, okay, so what happens to him? Uh, and I thought, well, nobody wanted him. He was abandoned on the... Freeway, what? If, or on this desert, lonely desert highway, what if nobody wanted him when he was in the orphanage? He couldn't get adopted, no matter what the nuns tried to do, present PowerPoint presentations of him, and nobody would adopt him. Uh, and then suddenly I thought, okay, then the interesting thing here will be he becomes 19, he leaves the orphanage, and within a year, every law enforcement agency in the country wants to get their hands on him. Now, why? And I thought about that for a while. And when I came up with the reason why, I laughed out loud and knew that it would be as much a comic novel as it would be a thriller. Uh, and that's sort of how it evolved. Uh, sometimes they, they sort of evolve and you look, I don't work with outlines, so I never know all the story twists and turns. But I sort of need to know that much, uh, something of that nature to get me going. And that's how that became.
1: And it became a picaresque novel. And road trip when you're putting together something like that is you is there a subtext in your mind or something that you want people to get besides the story? I knew that
8: this story uh you're you're sort of what the theme of the story is going to be. it always evolves into more than one theme, but you need I need one thing that this story is really going to be exploring, and uh, I decided this one and i've done this theme interests me anyway, and that it's about. It's about a particular, I think it's the way where all the evil comes from in the world. It's the desire of some people to have power over others, whether it's political power, whether it's the power of a, a violent husband over a submissive wife. Uh, it's where the desire for absolute power leads to uh, evil and destruction. And I knew that was going to be part of what this book was about. and It was going to be this character representing a force about undermining, destroying certain characters within the story. I didn't know that they were characters who lived for power over others. And so that became the underlying theme of the story. And then it develops others as it goes.
1: Do do you find in today's climate of, you know, political correctness and stuff like that, do do you find that you have to be careful on how you write dialogue for characters? Uh, I never want to write anything that offends
8: anybody, but I never give it any thought um, uh, because it's not what I set out to do. If somebody is going to read something the wrong way, uh, there's no way I can prevent that. Uh, and if you dwell on that too much, uh, you're going to rob the story of, of of any originality that might have, because there's a lot of, there's people with gen, genuine grievances and then there's a lot of people with funny grievances and you can't understand all of them. Uh, I've always felt I have political views, uh, but the writers I admire, like Dickens, uh, is a perfect example. Dickens is not a writer of politics. He's a writer about you Travails is a writer about the evils of life, uh, uh, the things that can go wrong in society. But he never proposes political solutions to them. And I'm sort of the same way. I want to address those issues. But I think the moment you begin to layer politics into fiction, uh, it's no longer art. It's propaganda. So it's best to stay away from all that and to stay away from thinking about how anybody's going to
7: interpret anything. Just, just write about what's in your heart. So curious about the aspect of um, working without an outline. Does that allow you to surprise yourself a lot as you're going through the journey? I, I used to write from outlines. Early on,
8: it was once I was selling regularly, then publishers would pay me, set a contract based on an outline. So they get an outline, I'd get the contract, they pay me half the money up front, I'd write the novel, I'd deliver it. And they would say, well, this isn't that much like the outline. They, I would say, no, it turned out a lot better. But Mm -hmm. in their minds, they'd spent a year or a year and a half waiting for this, thinking it was going to be one thing. Even if it was 80% that one thing, they didn't like it because it wasn't the other 20%. And I became so frustrated with that, that I finally decided with a novel titled Strangers, I was not going to use outlines anymore. I just start with the premise a couple of characters I was interested in, and see where it would go. And it was an odd novel to start that way, because it was like 250,000 words with a very large cast and multiple storylines. But it turned out to be the first hardcover bestseller I ever had, and it was the... It launched the career into new territory. Uh, and after that, i would never wanted to again. And again. Yeah, I am constantly surprised by where things go. Uh, but it's almost always to a good place. I, I say, I don't know how other writers figured to do this, but I always say I give my writers, my characters, free will. I let them go anywhere they want. And if they go somewhere I don't think they should, I really seriously consider my opposition to it, because I've learned over the years that moment they take a detour usually is going to be more fruitful than what I had at mind. Uh, now, some people say, well, you're creating them. They don't really have, well, they're not real people. It's the only way I can I can describe it, because when I stop trying to manage characters, the stories get much more interesting.
7: Um, I'm also so interested in these uh, pseudonyms from early in your career. I'm wondering, did each of them have their own personality, style, and sensibility, or what? oftentimes was it more convenience and just, you know, playing with different names? How did that work?
8: Uh, it was, several of them had Scottish names, because at that time you would see so many suspense writers, like Alistair McLean, uh, Hammond Innes, uh, they, they had Scottish names. So Brian Coffey, uh, uh, there were a couple more like that. Uh, I wrote under a female name, uh, K, uh,
7: well, it was, let's see, um. I see, uh, Deanna Dwyer yeah, and Lee Nichols. Yeah, uh,
8: Lee Nichols was the big one. Uh, Lee Nichols' first book sold over a million paperbacks. Uh, wow. and, uh, somebody said to me, how are you like, how do you, quite, how do you get into the head of Lee Nichols when you're writing this? And uh, I said, "Well, I put on a dress and a flowered hat, and then I go to <laughs> uh And it's, uh, what was interesting to me about that was I had so many readers for those books before I had that many readers for my own that when I issued those books later under my name, I got mail from women who been fans of the Nichols and just could not believe a man could write a woman to that effectively, and that surprised me. Because I said, well, I've known women writers who write men characters quite effectively. Why would you think men can't? And the answer would always be because they don't. (laughs) And uh, Uh I think that has changed a lot. But it was, there was a prejudice in publishers in those days. If a novel was aimed at women, it should be written by women. And uh, I think that led to men not really being that interested in going in that direction in that time.
7: Okay, I'm going to, if you'll uh, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to name some of your pseudonyms, no. and I want to give a comment on what they're like. Right, I'm going to start with Lee Nichols. What is she like as a writer? She uh, was all over the map,
8: sort of like I am. Uh, she wrote one book that was pretty much a horror novel, but it was also police procedural. Uh, she wrote uh, International Tree, uh, and uh, she wrote a book called the Eyes of Darkness, that had a, a virus escape from a land, lab in Wuhan. This was 40 years ago. Uh, so she was a little bit precognitive, I think. <laughs>
7: what about K.R. Dwyer?
8: K.R. Dwyer wrote just a few suspense novels for um, Random House, and he was very minimalist stylist that uh, go for the throat, propel the novel, get it done in 200 pages and beyond the next David Axton. One novel, uh, David Axton uh, wrote a novel called *Prison of Ice*, which I later put under my name under the title *Icebound*. He was—he uh, was a guy who wanted to be Alistair McLean because it was a point where I loved Alistair McLean.
7: Deanna Dwyer. That was very
8: early on. I couldn't make a living at writing. I was writing science fiction and knew I was going to have to give that up because. It was what I read as an adolescent, but it wasn't where my talent was. And I had a, a, a editor who said, I can keep you afloat while you're trying to find your way if you'll write gothic romances under a pendant. And that was where Deanna Dreyer was born. So that was writing a gothic paperback novel in a month. Uh, and you would be paid in those days three or four thousand, which is much more than that.
7: And the last one, the estimable estimable Scottish writer Brian Coffey. (laughs) Brian Coffey did some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, He
8: wrote uh, three books in a series, uh, but that was his least work. Then he wrote a book called The Voice of the Night, which has been in print under my name for a long, long time now. Uh, And uh, he he wrote uh, another book that I... Uh, eventually put on in my name uh, because I killed off Brian by that point. Uh, but he was uh, he was adventuresome uh, in a way that many of the other pen, pen names I
6: used at the time weren't. Now there's a concept in uh, Quicksilver of uh, the strange magnetism that draws the main character, uh, Qu- uh, Quicksilver, into the plot. Uh, does that idea come from something in real life that uh, you research, or is it purely your imagination?
8: It actually is something I stole from myself. Uh, it's mm-hmm. something that Ott Thomas has. He calls it uh, psychic magnetism, and uh, and in the first novel, it leads to uh, he's following psycho- psychic magnetism, and he doesn't know where it's leading. And at the end of the novel, it leads him to this great tragedy. Um and uh, I I was fascinated that in Odd uh, Thomas novels and I thought I would use that a little bit again in Quinn Quicksilver, but uh it was just something that I invented for odd and uh decided to use again.
6: Now when when you write Quinn or any of your other characters, do you do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters voices in your mind as you're writing? Very often,
8: yes. Uh uh, I, if I write with my office door open at the other house, this was true, uh, and my wife's office was right next door to mine, and people were coming and going past the door, they would hear me sometimes laughing out loud, and sometimes in tears, and it would be about the characters, and often the, when laughter was there, something the character was saying. Uh I can hear how a character speaks uh, I know in the Jane Hawk novel, there's one of them, I think it's The Whispering Room, where, uh, she ends up in Arkansas. And I had what I thought was going to be a two-page scene with her in this rural p- crime boss. Uh, but I heard his voice and, and that accent and the patois so clearly that these scenes with him expanded. And, uh, and it was because I heard him and I loved hearing him. I just wanted to write more from, from that voice and hear him talking and hear him interacting with her. And she was a voice that came to me. Uh, they were, really, I never thought I'd write five books with her. I thought it was three, but I couldn't stop uh, because I couldn't get to see what she was doing next. And I loved particularly how she spoke. My editor sent at one point, I love how she talks to the bad guys. And I said, so do I. She delights me when I listen to her talk. And, uh, so, yeah, if the character works, I can pretty much hear them.
6: Now, is that how you decide on uh, point of view, uh, whether it's going to be first or third person? Does it depend on how the character is talking to you or how you're kind of visualizing the story? Yeah, to an
8: extent. Uh, uh Odd Thomas just came to me in the first person. Uh, and it would have been easier to write the next seven books if I'd have been able to have multiple viewpoints. So you should occasionally, but then again it wouldn't have been as good because his voice is what carries those books more than almost anything else. Uh, and so I like books with multiple viewpoints because it does let you shift around and change around uh, and give the reader different experiences. Uh, and uh, uh, but every way you approach a story is interesting in its own, right? uh, I, it just is an intuitive thing And as, well, if the story is one that's a big sprawling story that's going to have to have storylines in different places uh, Like Strangers, or uh, The Face, or From the corner of His Eye, or I have a book coming out later this year called The Big Dark Sky um, Those require multiple viewpoints uh, so it's sort of material that drives
1: it by you know uh, when you mentioned eyes of darkness earlier, it's funny because there's a lot of uh, stories around the internet about uh, how you predicted the uh, <laughs> coronavirus, the Wuhan 400 um, years <laughs> ago um, how do you how do you feel about something like that? Well, I got rather startled by the fact
8: it became such a big deal. Uh, and I was seeing all these things about how precognitive I was. And finally, I, I said in one interview uh, that I hoped it would settle it. Uh, I said, look, I, the only reason it was a on there is, in my research, I turned out this biological warfare laboratory, which is what it is. It's not just a biological laboratory. It, it has been for around 50 years a biological warfare lab. And that's what I needed in the story. Uh, so I said, this came from this biological warfare lab in Wuhan. Now the book does not predict a pandemic. It isn't about that kind of thing at all. But that's what a lot of people were really ever saying. So in an interview, hoping to put an end to this, I said that, look, I have no precognitive ability. I have no psychic ability. I have no idea what I'm having for dinner that night. And I hope that kind of approach should put an end to it. And it, it, it just didn't die out on its own.
1: Yeah, then they start blaming you for being in on it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't win that
6: one, you know? No.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, well, Dean, that's uh, been wonderful. So your new book is available everywhere and, of course, on your website. And I believe that's com, correct? Yes, deinkunst.com. Fantastic. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you here today, and uh, uh, we wish you the best. Thanks for being here, Dean Coons.
8: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I had fun.
6: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website.
2: In the Shapiro report.
5: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to
3: www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
4: Well,
8: good night. This has been a production of Something Weird
1: Media.
4: I'll be back. How you doing? This is Gary Garver. In today's society, the majority of people are not getting enough sleep. I know I'm not. If you're like me and having problems getting a good night's rest, whether it's health or stress related, I have a solution for you, South Pacific Sleep Lab. South Pacific Sleep Lab will do an evaluation of your sleep pattern and will provide a comprehensive study so you can start getting a restful, peaceful night of sleep. They take all types of insurance, which will cover your cost of the evaluation, and they will even provide transportation to their offices at no cost to you. For more information, contact Tony at 310-999-1887. That's 310-999-1887. Tony even stays awake all night, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, so you can sleep better and rest easy. South Pacific Sleep Lab. Start feeling better and getting a great night of sleep today. If you're a grape grower looking
5: for reliable, effective weed control right now, you need Mission Herbicide. As the product of choice for countless vineyards, Mission controls grass, broadleaf, and sedge weeds in grapes by delivering both long-lasting pre-emergent and post-emergent control. Mission is absorbed through the foliage and roots of weeds for optimal control, even on glyphosate-resistant Italian ryegrass, nut sedge, fillery, and other stubborn weed species. It's also a great tank mix partner to help you manage resistance. Mission is now even labeled for control of wild carrot and grapes. Other great advantages of Mission are its excellent crop tolerance and low application rates. Add it all up and you can see why long-lasting Mission is the one you want. Mission Herbicide is exclusively available from Helena Agra Enterprises and Tenco's member companies.
3: Always read and follow label directions. The complete website is com or call us at 818-610-8088 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088 com. First tattoo, huh? Yep, I wanted to
5: read Tough on silids, Easy on Bees. What's the story behind that? Well, on my orchard, I use this powerful stuff from BASF app called Safina and Scallus Insecticide. Sorry, it's going to sting. So, Safina insecticide? It's
0: strong on psyllids and quickly limits HLB spread, but gentle on bees. Gentle on bees? Yeah, they're the bees' knees. Be strong and gentle with Safina
3: insecticide.
0: Always read and follow label directions.
3: Psst. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Do you know where you are? Well, you've done it now. You're listening to KCAA Loma Linda, your CNBC news station. So, expect... The Unexpected. The Opperman
0: Report is brought to you by.